G'day everyone, uh, my name's Jez, if we haven't met, uh, I'm going to pray and then let's dive into this word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do exactly that, we fix our thoughts on you and by faith in your word we see you at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling and reigning, glorious and to think that you call us brothers and sisters. Uh, we praise you, we, we long to live lives that please you, that are increasingly like your life. And so we ask that as we come to your word now, that you might meet us where we're at and give us the encouragement and the challenge that we need for this to happen. And so we do ask this in your name. Amen. Well, when you rocked up to church tonight, uh, how did you greet the people that you saw, or hopefully, how were you greeted? You, you probably said, hello, hi, g'day, uh, how's it going? Uh, that's fairly typical 21st century Central Coast greeting, right? But for actually most of the last 2,000 years, much of it anyway, Christians had a, a, a quite a unique, bit of a weird thing for us, way of greeting one another. As they would see each other, they would say, the Lord be with you. To which the person would respond, and also with you. Now, that sounds like a bit of a weird thing for us, culturally it is, but there's something weirdly Christian that's beautiful about it, which gets to the heart of what the Christian message is about, which is not a bunch of boxes, religious boxes to tick, but a God to know, to have relationship with that it can be said that we might even know the intimate, personal presence of the Lord God, the Lord be with you. Which, after all, of course, just echoes what the resurrected Lord Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension to us, as he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so that begs the question, I don't know if you've wondered this, what does that mean that the Lord will be with us? What will that look like for your life to have the Lord with you in your corner? Well, that's a question that this part of the Joseph account actually speaks to. And you'll see there, come back to Genesis chapter 39, really important to have a Bible open here. You'll see that this chapter is bookended by that statement, the Lord was with Joseph. You see it there, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And again in verse 23 at the end, the Lord was with Joseph. And so what I want us to do is to look at two big experiences that Joseph has to see how that bears on what it means for the Lord to be with you as he was with Joseph. Okay? Uh, two big things that Joseph experiences with the Lord, with him. Number one, it's the experience of temptation. It's there in the middle of this account, as we've had read, to have the Lord with us doesn't mean we won't face temptation. As though there's going to be this force field around us since we're kids of the king and all of that will be kept at bay. We see that Joseph very much experienced temptation, though the Lord was with him. As we read, he's, he's a hunk of a man, he's ridiculously good-looking. 
and he's caught the eye of his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, who doesn't just say, let's go to bed once, but over and over and over she's at him. Pick it up again in verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph, day after day he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. An unjust, unfounded accusation of sexual assault. She repeats this story to her husband, his master, when he comes home, who, verse 20, burns with anger, throws Joseph into prison. And so what I want to just spend some time doing here is consider the place of temptation, Joseph resisting temptation, and in particular, sexual temptation. Now, I know we looked at something of this last week. Uh, As we follow the agenda that the Bible sets, here it is again. Uh, So something important for us to do. I also just want to acknowledge up front that as we deal with this topic, it It is a painful topic for some of us. Uh, I I get that. Um, One of the privileges of being a pastor is to walk alongside people. I I know that this is painful for some of us. Uh, But the Bible speaks to it. It's so important. And so let's go there. Uh, It has been said that women need a reason to have sex. Men just need a place. It's a comment that is... He's pointing out the differences, generally, between men and women. And it's it's a comment that has rung true of my experience in life. As I've... um, I I grew up playing a lot of sport, and so uh, as I hit the the men's ages and the men's team, and I spent time in the football locker room, in the cricket change room, and would listen to married men boast of their latest conquests this week. It's, it's kind of the Aussie culture that we live in. But Joseph is an example that is at odds with the stereotypical bloke, isn't he? I mean, he is crazy according to our world. Here is a man who has had a woman, woman come to him and offer him sex and he runs in the other direction. Why? And actually more than that, how? How does he do this? This is extremely practical for us tonight. Especially when he doesn't even have a spouse. He doesn't have someone that he'll upset as he goes somewhere else. Why does this single man run from what our world will say, go for it? There's a, there's a scene from what is now a very old movie. And part of the problems uh, with movies and illustrations for me is I'm sure that I've seen more movies from the 20th century than I have from the 21st century. Um, I just don't have the time to go there. So bear with a very old movie. It's called City Slickers. 
Um, I'm not excited. Oh, Lucy's seen it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's actually quite funny. Billy Crystal, I don't know if you heard of the actor. He's a very clever and very funny man. But um, it's this movie about these three men from the city who are, are trying to find the meaning in life. And so they go on this um, kind of cattle herding experience. And so here are these men out on horseback and, and there's two of them, two mates, Ed and Mitch together and they kind of got some man-to-man time to chat and so on. And I remember this scene, it stuck with me and I chased it up and I've written down. Um, Ed says to Mitch, they're just riding along, he says, what if you could have great sex with someone very attractive and Barbara, who's Mitch's wife, would never find out? Mitch replies, it's a big trap. Look what happened to Phil, who's the third friend on the trip who did commit adultery early in the movie and we see just the mess and the consequences of that. So Ed then says to Mitch, all right, well, let's say a spaceship lands and the most beautiful woman you ever saw gets out and all she wants to do is have the greatest sex in the universe with you And the second it's over, she flies away for eternity. No one will ever know. You're telling me you still wouldn't do it? That's the football locker room that I've grown up with. That's the culture that we have. Mitch says, no. It wouldn't make it all right if Barbara didn't know. I'd know and I wouldn't like myself. And it just, it always stuck with me, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But it doesn't matter about the movie, you don't chase it up. The thought of experiment, it's an interesting one. A spaceship, and then off she goes. No one will ever know. Swap it out for him if that's what you need to do for the thought experiment. No one will ever know. What are the reasons that Mitch gives for not committing adultery on his wife? Well, there's two. One of them is consequences as he sees in others the unhappiness that inevitably follows when she will find out. The consequences is one reason. The second reason is a personal moral guilt that would be like a splinter in the mind that he doesn't think he can live with. Now, when we come to the Bible and ask what motivations does it give us to flee temptation and particularly sexual temptation, we find a number of motivations that it gives. One of them is in agreement with Mitch, it's consequences. As as we think about fleeing sexual temptation, the Bible says, think of the consequences, which is quite a bizarre thing for our day. Um, See, in 1960, something happened that changed our cultural thinking about sex forever in the most profound way that none of us realise because we all just come way later. But for millennia prior, humanity had thought about sex very differently to the way that you and I do. Why? Well, because in 1960, the contraceptive pill was introduced so that now for the first time in human history the consequence of sex and conception and a baby and nine months later a human being to deal with could be separated radical 
Radical. Never, ever been done. As you thought about sex for millennia, you always had to think about the consequence, the likely consequence of a child. Now, that consequence is removed. And then, of course, even when it does happen, because, of course, it's not 100%, we have appeal even to deal with that. Sex, in our day, has become something that has no consequences or so it is sold. As long as there is consent, which is a landmine, you know that, as long as there is consent, it's just a physical act no different than a handshake or a back rub. But here's the thing, as hard as we might try to remove any consequences from sex, they stubbornly remain. I mean, in lots of different ways, one of them physically, there's the rampant problem of SDIs in our community. Whenever I walk into a public toilet and I see the sticker that says, have you got checked? I'm like, the Bible has an answer for this. It's called monogamy in marriage. My year seven kid just had a vaccine injection when I chased it up. It's to protect him, along with all year seven kids who got it, from a particular STI. The Bible had an answer for that. We wouldn't need these things. There are consequences. Then there's the emotional consequences. The emotional cost, especially for women. That though sex is supposed to have no strings attached, no consequences, it does. And we just, we can't shake that. The reality is something different because sex is sacred. It, it is designed by God to actually have a power to bond. It's not a nothing. It's not a mere physical act. And so that we try and remove that consequence, it remains. And, and so this power, when it is unleashed in the wrong place, it has an emotional consequence. And then there's the unwanted pregnancy that even as I have spoken to non-Christian women... Tell me of the emotional scars that will always remain. There's the consequences of how it messes with future relationships. So that what may not seem like an issue now actually does become an issue, particularly as you find that one that you do want to call husband, wife. And this whole history of thinking that sex had no consequence comes home to roost as there's comparisons, as there's jealousy, as there's hurt. Friends, trust me. As much as our culture has tried to throw off all consequences, there really are. It's the way God has made it. Now, for those of you who are married now or will be married, likely many of you, there's adultery. The Bible personifies adultery being like a woman's lips that drip honey. Sweet, attractive. But in the end, she is bitter as gall. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. The Bible says one of the motivations to flee from sexual temptation 
any sex, adultery or other, that is not as God intended, is to think about the consequences. And they are real and they are far-reaching when it comes to adultery. One fleeting moment of indulgence will blow up your life. Some of you know this because you've seen it in your families. It's the number one pastoral issue that I end up dealing with in our morning congregations. Marriage problems. Now, none of these things are outside the forgiveness of our gracious Father. None of them. Jesus came to die for our sins, all of them. And there is the very real hope of healing. As, as someone who can speak from experience, uh, the gospel is the most wonderful, powerful news and there is hope of healing, though it is like putting a beautiful vase back together with sticky tape. It is, though there is hope. And so if that is you, know that there is hope. But if that is not you, hear what the Bible would say. Spare yourself and others from the consequences. But there's an even more powerful motivation on view here. And I really want us to see this. It's, it's the motivation that's on view with Joseph. Do you see it? Verse 9. He says to this woman who wants him to go to bed with her, he says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master? Except he doesn't say that, does he? You expect him to say that. How could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't talk about human consequences. He talks about what it means before God. When you get this, this is hugely important about understanding lots of things, sin included. And that is that firstly and foremostly, every sin no matter how bad, how grievous toward one another, is firstly and foremostly a sin against God. King David, who we get to some thousand years before Jesus, he, he learnt this the hard way. One of the pictures of a righteous man in Scripture and yet commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up to get away with it. When that doesn't work, he has her husband killed so he could take her as his wife. The child dies. It's a complete mess. And as he comes to clarity on what he's done and repentance, we actually get his prayer before God in Psalm 51. Chase it up later. But when you go there, it's staggering because you read, he says, Lord God, against you and you only have I sinned. And you read it going, hang on, what do you mean of God only? What about Bathsheba, sinned against her? What about the child who died, sinned against her? What about Uriah, the husband that he had killed, sinned against her? What about, what about all the people of Israel that he was supposed to be king over and lead, sinned against them? And yet, as he rightly sees the greatness of God, he says, it is against you and you only that I have sinned. 
And if you find yourself reacting against that, that sin is ultimately about God, it's a good indicator that God is not as big in your thinking as he should be. And the reverse, here's the encouragement for us. Getting God in the right place in your life provides the most powerful motivation to flee sin. See, this is in contrast to all the worldly wisdom on resisting temptation. If you, if you look to the self-help stuff about how to resist temptation, whether it's the smaller things of food or, or the bigger vices that you don't want to indulge in, you boil it down, you'll get basically the same thing. Tips and tricks that are about strengthening your willpower. You know, is it 21 days, do something so that it becomes a habit and then you'll have the willpower, whatever. The answer to resisting is within. But look at Joseph. He doesn't look within to his willpower, he looks without to God. To the God who is with him. The God that he walks with and before, that every part of his life is in front of, that he is accountable to. See the power in this. The Bible will offer two motivations for fearing God. Number one, that his judgment is coming. That Paul will say, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives. Oh, everything. Fear God because he watches He notices, he cares, and we will give an account. There's one of the reasons, but there's a more powerful motivation than fear. It's love. And Paul himself, just a few verses later, goes on to talk about how the love of Christ constrains him. His life is actually shaped, is bound, doesn't go beyond limits because of the love of Christ. This is, this is the big thing for us. Um, that there is a power as you appreciate the love of Christ for you to resist temptation. More powerful than fear. It's like um, you, you go to uh, watch a, a young man play soccer and you've been watching his team play all year and you notice something is different today. What's, go- what's going on? He's playing out of his skin Man, look how hard he's running. What's going? And then you work out what's going on. His new girlfriend is on the sideline watching him. And he's bursting out of his skin to impress her. And and when there's a fight on the field, which probably doesn't happen in soccer, rugby league, there's a puncher. He doesn't go in because he wants to impress his girlfriend. He doesn't argue back with the ref. Do you see what's happening? His love, his concern for the girl is actually shaping and constraining. There's a power of love. Let me show you another one. It's back in chapter 29 in uh, Jacob. Jacob, who was Joseph's father. And I know you looked at this last week. But Jacob is in love with Rachel, wants to marry her, but as was the custom of the day, the father of the bride set the price for the bride and he said it as seven years of labour that Jacob had to work to get his wife. So, chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Do you see the power of love 
as a motivation. That a sucky job for seven years, like it was a couple of days. Friends, how will you resist temptation? How will you resist sexual temptation? Having Jesus as your Rachel, a greater Rachel, to, to really love him. Not the idea of him, but, but to really love him. That's the power. Not in you, but as always, in him, the Saviour. You go, okay, well, well, how do I get that power? How, how do I get that? Well, the answer is always the same. The ultimate answer to every problem is the gospel. And it is to go over and over and deeper and deeper into just what he has done for you. Which is what Paul was gripped by. He, he couldn't speak otherwise. He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to resist temptation? You want to fight sin? It won't be tips and tricks. It'll be looking to the Lord, who he is and what he's done for you. That he's with you and now your love for him will actually shape. You have the power by his spirit for a changed life. There's the big thing that I want us to see about his temptation. Just quickly though, before we move on to the second big thing, just note that he, he doesn't flirt with temptation and sin, he flees from it. He doesn't try and get as close as possible before he steps over the line. Notice he he won't even be with her now that he knows what's going on. Uh, Day after day he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Wouldn't have been a sin to be in the presence of this woman, would it? But but he, he wisely sets a fence around what is sin and he sets the fence further out so that with wisdom, he, he won't go there, friends. There is, there is great wisdom here. Um, to, to put a fence, to put fences, to put boundaries around what you know the Lord would not have you do. And so do you have those boundaries? Do you have those fences? And a sure sign of worry is that the fences get, get smaller, get smaller, get closer. Take care. Wisdom gives sin a wide berth. There's the first big thing we see about the reality of the Lord being with Joseph, the power to resist temptation. Here's the second big thing. It's the pit. Joseph's story is a long one, and it is quite familiar to many, but here's a reminder of how it begins in chapter 37. It begins with a dream that he has as the youngest of 12 brothers, that his elder brothers would bow down to him, would honour him, revere him, worship him. And he, he goes away and shares this dream with the older brothers. How do you think that goes with them? It goes down like a lead balloon. They are so incensed, so that verse 20, they say, let's kill him and throw him into a pit and say that an animal killed him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Well, they end up stopping short of killing him. They work out they can actually make a buck by selling him onto slave traders, people traffickers. 
who in turn take him down to Egypt and sell him to Potiphar, who actually turns out to be one of Pharaoh's top dogs, the ruler of Egypt. And so it's in chapter 39 here that we read of Joseph's success. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. As a slave, there's prosperity as a slave. And we see the same again later. The Lord's intimate presence, though, does not prevent Joseph from going down into the pit. Because by the end of the chapter, because of this accusation of sexual assault, he's back in the pit, this time in prison. One of the most remarkable things about Joseph's story is the rise and fall, the rise and fall. Though he's in prison and has a a glimpse of getting out, he's instead forgotten about, as we read through, for two years and left in this prison. You can't help but notice that much of Joseph's life, his experience of having the Lord with him, is marked by being in the pit. A literal pit to begin with, which becomes figurative, metaphorical for suffering, hardship, despair. In fact, the Bible writers later on, King David will draw back at Psalm 103 on this language of the pit. Rescue me from the pit, Lord. And Joseph, he's there Not because he sinned, but because he was righteous. As it would be true for Job, a righteous sufferer. As it would be true for Jeremiah, a righteous sufferer. As it would be true for Jesus. This, I want to put to you, is surely one of the greatest lessons this account has for us. Particularly for you if you are in the pit right now. Or to tuck away for when you are there. Because let me promise you, you will be. If you've not yet experienced the, the depth of the pit, like not just some hard stuff, but oh, you will. Maybe you are there now and it's because of relational pain. Maybe it's connected to what we've just looked at with with sexual pain. Maybe it's pain with parents, with friends. Maybe your pit is the pit of loss. You've, You've lost something, someone that you cannot get back. Maybe it's the pit of loneliness. Maybe it's the pit of severe, crippling, physical or mental illness. And you're in the pit and the lights just seem to have gone out. It feels so dark. Well, the Joseph story tells you this, that the Lord's promise to be with you follows you into the pit. That he is with you in the pit. He is for you there. And so do not mistake darkness for being deserted. Oh, it can be so dark. That does not mean he's deserted you. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're in the pit? Well, let me offer just two things that 
have been so helpful. I've had one particular season and experience of the pit, which was just so incredibly dark. And what has helped me, uh, number one, is to acknowledge how scary the pit really is. You might not have this problem. I did. I had the problem of feeling like in order to follow Jesus and honour Jesus, I had to be okay. I had to keep going and I had to tough it out. I had to be stoic for Jesus because surely that's what a faithful Christian would do. And yet, feelings were made to be felt. And the Bible, God's word gives us permission to feel and direct these to him. The Psalms, full of it, to cry out in agony, in pain to him. Don't imagine that Joseph just sat in the pit, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for God to make his next move. You can be sure of that. We see in chapter 42, verse 21, as his brothers later on will reflect on that moment as they throw him in the pit, They say, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And we can surely imagine that Joseph pleads with the Lord who is with him. The Lord being with you in the pit doesn't remove the painful things that make it the pit. It's okay to acknowledge how hard it is. Another little thing that I would offer before the next bigger thing is depending on the nature of the pit, and I'm using it metaphorical, but if things get so dark connected to mental illness, go and see a doctor. It was one of the things that I think actually saved my life, that someone cared enough to say, hey, let's go see a doctor. And so if that is you, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, It has been one of the the, the healthy developments in our culture. There has been good that has happened in our culture, which is a readiness to do that, where even in in my generation growing up, that just, it wasn't something you did, you pushed on. Um, So if that is you, go, go and get help. There is good help. But the big thing, You don't just have the Lord's presence with you in the pit. You have his providence to press into. You have his providence to press into. What does that mean? What is providence? Providence refers to the way that God rules over every single little detail in the world so that everything lands exactly as he intends it to land. See, God, if, you, if, you could, if I could put it this way, has a dream, has a vision of where all of reality is heading and he's ruling every little detail so that it all gets there. God's providence is over the seemingly random small details of life. Proverbs 16 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the Lord. Or another way to put it is, as you you roll the dice in your favourite board game, you play backgammon and it all seems so random. The Lord is sovereign over those numbers. You kick a rugby league ball that just bounces anywhere and everywhere. The Lord providentially rules over every bounce. His providence extends 
to the nations. Job chapter 12 says, He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. And so the developments between Russia and North Korea, what's happening in China and India, their rise, the fall of the West, none of this is taking God by surprise. He has and will rule over every single election, over every single encounter, every little detail that contributes to world order. God's provident over it. And here is probably the most important dimension of his providence for us, particularly as we're in the pit. Surely one of our favourite verses of all time, but this is not just a throwaway meme verse. Romans 8.28 We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. All things for our good. And so, as you're in the pit, here's the big thing to do, to trust him. That he really is ruling over every little detail for your good. Even in the experience of the pit, where our dreams are dashed or maybe have become nightmares, God's dream, which is a glorious dream for your life, will always be realised. And one day, you will see it to be so. So here's the big thing about God's providence, actually. So often, it is unseen. You're not going to go, oh, oh, I see what you're doing, God. You're doing that so that this can now happen and that'll happen and that'll... It just seems ordinary, random, or maybe even pointless. I mean, think about Joseph. It's hard to actually look at part of the Joseph story without looking at where it ends. Now, we'll come to this next week, but spoiler alert, God saves the whole world through Joseph. And he does this literally because there is such a severe famine in the land. And Joseph finds himself as prime minister of Egypt. And through his wisdom and his leadership and his policy, he's actually able to to retain enough food to not just keep the Egyptians, but the surrounding nations alive through such a severe famine. He saves the world. Do you know how he becomes prime minister? Through connections that he made in prison that he was forgotten about for two years. How did he get to prison? Because he was unjustly accused of sexual assault. What was the context of that accusation? Well, he was a slave in the home of Potiphar. Why? Because he'd been sold to slave traders. Why? Because his brothers had ditched him in a pit. Why? Because he had a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. There is no way we would write the Joseph story like that. I mean, think about it. If someone gave you the opening chapter of Joseph, where he has a dream that his brothers will bow down to him, and you are told, all right, write the rest of the story so that that thing happens, so that his brothers bow down to him. How are you going to get there? And you have to be Joseph. You can't just have some fun with his pain. You have to live this life. 
There is no way that we would write the Joseph story the way that God has. And I get it that some of you might be reacting and protesting, going, oh, but really? I just cannot imagine how what is going on in my life, in fact, maybe my whole life, could have any good purpose. Really? I, I can't imagine that God is providentially working over it for good. And that just proves the point. Because your, my imagination is not as good as God's. His all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful imagination, vision, is that of the Creator, not the little creature. And so, here's the big thing for us to do, is to trust the Lord of all the little pieces. Because He is the Lord of the big picture. A good, glorious picture. And here's the thing. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, if he is with you, then you don't know what your next chapter will have. But you do know how your final chapter ends. You don't know what the next chapter will have. Will it be prosperity, which Joseph had moments to enjoy? Or will it be in the pit? Will the circumstances change that you long to change or will they remain or even get worse? Don't know. How many more chapters will there be? Don't know. But, but friends, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, know how your final chapter ends. And it's with the resurrected Lord Jesus wiping every tear from your eyes and welcoming you into his new creation not a fluffy, heavenly thing, a new creation. He's done it once. He's determined to do it again. This time, sin will never enter. No more resisting temptation. That is how your final chapter goes. And so, entrust yourself to the God who will sovereignly, providentially rule over every detail of every chapter. And the final way that I want to apply this to us is by inviting us to come and have a mini meal together. To actually take the Lord's Supper communion. Because the thing about, the commun about communion is it's not just a religious box-ticking thing. It, it's an enacted word. We actually give expression to the truths that we are considering, that we believe about the Lord God. I'm going to ask the band to come on up because... I ask them to, to share with us a song that I think quite helpfully connects into what we have been considering. So here's what I want us to do. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, whether this is your church home or you are visiting, you are welcome. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, then just take this time to reflect or better still, put your trust in him and come and eat with us. Um, but if that is you, come and grab some bread, some juice, take it back to your seat. Uh, hold on to it because we will come to a time of taking it together later. Uh, but I want you to do this um, as reflectively as possible. Um, this isn't church over, let's talk about the footy. Let's, let's stay in this place of, of reflecting and fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
So the band will play. Come and grab some bread, some juice, take it back, and then I'll lead us in that in a moment.